0: Amen. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Somebody's here for the very first time. I know for sure he's not very old. His name is Nathan Douglas Duncan. Hey, how about that guy right there? Right there. You want to see him after the service today. I'm sure his proud parents, Doug and Katie, would love to show him off a little bit. So we're excited about that. We're excited that you're here today. We know that that God has made a way so that our Souls can be well. It can be well with our souls. And if your soul is, is not well today, you've come to the right place to hear about the one who can fix it, the one who can mend it. Jesus is his name. We look at the book of Romans again. I invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture uh, to Romans 9. If you don't have a copy, grab that one in front of you. Young people, I want you to see this. I want you to see how, how wonderful this is. A lot of folks want to skip... Uh, chapter 9 through 11 in the book of Romans. We're going to deal with some very difficult things like God's sovereignty and, and predestination and election. And We're not going to deal with all of those today. We're going to deal with some uh, aspects of those today because the, this is a, a section of Scripture that has divided even Christianity about whether God is in the choosing business, and He is, or we are in the business of choosing Him and He calls us to. And so does God choose us to love us? Yes. Does God want us to choose him in return to love and serve him and follow him? Yes. But there's a division between Calvinist and and folks who are not Calvinist. Some call themselves provisionist or Arminianist. There's a lot of theological names. We're not going to get into the depths of all of that. I'd love to visit with you if you have questions about that. But we're going to try our best to preach the scripture as it's uh, given to us. And we want to look at the text and not determine what we believe or don't believe based upon a book of theology or someone's thoughts. There's a lot of good, solid Christian folks on both sides of the discussion. But we want to take our faith and our practice from his word. So we get a plot twist here between Romans 8 and 9. We, it's been a while since we've been in Romans 8, so I just want to remind you of how grand it is that that chapter ends. Remember Romans 8, beginning with verse 38, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you get the point? God loves you. God loves you and he wants you to know that and he wants you to love him in return. We get, go from the sunshine of that text to the gloom of chapter 9. There's a little plot twist. That happens in the scripture, and that happens in our lives. Now, me, you know, I, I golf, and I golf with my buddy who's pastor up at Plains named Patrick Hamilton. He's a lot better golfer than I am, but I beat him not too long ago. I remind him of that every chance I get. And we on Thursdays, both of our days off, we we kind of golf a little bit and and sometimes you know we golf will cause you to do this. you just get mad, and I don 't know why you should never be mad on the golf course it's a beautiful place, there's sun out there, the manicured fairways and greens and and you you just shouldn't ever be mad when you're with your buddies doing something that you love, right? But you do. I miss a putt and I get mad and I want to throw things, my clubs are I want to say things that no preacher, no no anybody should ever say. But I have never done what I heard happen this week. As I was preparing for this message, I saw a guy uh, tell this story. He was following a foursome, and a guy was getting agitated on the greens ahead of him. You could tell every, every green was just a little more agitated about the eighth green. He missed a short putt, and he was mad. And he did throw things, and he did cuss, and he did something that was so unexpected, he went to his his golf cart and undid his golf bag and picked up his golf bag and threw his whole golf bag into the lake and drove off that was it for the day but what was unexpected about that is a few minutes later he comes back and he trudges in there and they think he's going to go get his golf clubs because I'm sure there's expensive golf clubs and and he's going to get them out of the lake but he does that he gets his golf bag out of the lake but he unzips his pocket and he gets out his car keys and then he throws his golf bag back in the lake (laughs) I've never done that. I'm not going to do that. That's unexpected. Have you ever been watching the weather and you just know something's going on and the clouds begin to roll in and, and you know the temperature has dropped about 20 degrees in the last 30 minutes or last hour and you just know a storm is coming and we don't know if it's hail or you don't know if it's sleet or you don't know what's going to happen but you see it coming and you, and you wonder about all that. The, the weather changes in a whim around here, doesn't it? And that's what happens in the book uh, that Paul writes, the letter that Paul writes to the Romans. He is so ecstatic in chapter 8, and then he's so depressed and discouraged at the beginning of chapter 9. We're going to look at the first five verses standing together, and then we're going to look at the rest of uh, 6 through 13 together. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as Paul writes about his deep burden for his own people, his deep passion for his own people. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. He wants you to know. He's not lying. He's telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth here. My heart, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. My Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed His glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them His law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping Him and receiving His wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Father, teach us through these chapters about your great... Love, sovereignty. And Lord, teach us to have a, a heart like yours, a heart like Paul's. A burden. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to cover six through thirteen as well. So keep your Bibles open, if you would, and as we. Look at this text together. There are three questions on the back of your bulletin I w- we're going to consider because there's a whole bunch of questions that I have about this section that Paul is talking about, about the, the people of Israel, about the Jewish people. Now, I don't know if you feel like this is relevant or not in our day, but just this last week, did you, if you watch the news at all, I try not to because it's pretty depressing, but I try to keep up with current events and what's going on. You noticed it on... Uh, Like the 29th, President Trump came up with a Middle East peace plan. And the Jerusalem Post called it the best plan that has ever been offered to Israel. Well, I think they were wrong. Because the best peace plan that's ever been offered to Israel is Jesus. And the sad part about it that Paul recognizes is they rejected it. By the time Paul writes his book to the Romans, most of the the Jewish people he had encountered, as he always does when he comes into a town, he goes to the synagogue, and most always he was rejected there. Most all of the turmoil and difficulty that he was caused him in his ministry was caused by his own people who were running him out of town, who were whipping him, who were uh, stoning him. All sorts of things were happening, and that was caused by his own people, the Jewish people. Now remember, Paul at one time was the great defender of Judaism. He was the one who was persecuting Christians. He was the one who held... Uh, Stephen's coat as they stoned him he was there when the church of Jesus Christ was being persecuted and now the tables are turning and and Paul's the the great apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and now his own people his own people have rejected what what do we gain from these verses well the first thing I want you to see is is there, there are three questions and I have a kind of an action point for each one of those the first thing is that we've got to have a burden for our own people who are your people do you know I hope you do I hope you recognize your people as your oikos your family and your friends and and so when Paul writes about this burden he he talks about that with great sincerity I want you to know this is Christ is my witness. It's utterly truthful. It's the conscience of the Holy Spirit that confirm all of this. He means business. And not only that, he says, but with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. Why would he still love them? Because they're his people. He's proud to be a Jew. He's proud of his heritage. And he wants them to know now what he knows, that Jesus is the one they've been looking for all their lives, the one they've been scanning the horizon for, the Messiah that they have been looking for for hundreds and thousands of years. He's there. Paul has seen him on the road to Damascus, and Paul has converted and Paul now wants to tell everybody about that. And he has been called to the Gentile people, but he doesn't neglect his own people, the Jewish people. And so you've got to ask yourself, do you have that kind of burden? Because it doesn't matter if you pray and you invest and invite your people if you don't really care. They don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. So you have a passion and a burden for them. Now, a burden, hear me at this point, a burden is just something that breaks God's heart that ought to break your heart too. And we know when people are far from God, it ought to break our heart too. Ray Steadman writes about uh, a guy who asked his friend uh, about dismissing their pastor. He said, I heard you, you, you fired your preacher. Why? And they said, because he told us we were going to hell. And the friend said, well, well, what about the next guy? What does he say? And the guy says, he told us we were going to hell too. So what's the difference? Well, the first guy acted like he was glad about it. (laughs) And the next guy said it like it was breaking his heart. There's a difference, is there not? And so, what's on your heart? Better said, who's on your heart? Who are you burdened for? Who do you have that kind of bitter sorrow and unending grief for? Because here's what Paul says I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Jesus, cut off from Christ, if it would save them. Forever cursed well what's that all about I think Paul is saying here he would be willing to go to hell if it would allow his people to go to heaven he would be willing to be forever cursed if his people would be saved And folks that's passion I'm not sure I have that kind of burden for people but here's what I do know hell is a real place and we can't ever forget it. It's not a place where people are partying all the time. It's not a place where hellraisers go and think they're having fun all the time. It's a place, the Bible describes it as a place of darkness and a place of fire and a place of torture and a place of pain and suffering and anguish and a place of eternal isolation and separation where you never know anyone and you're always lonely. We don't want anybody to go to that place. I want people to go to heaven. I don't want to go to heaven without my wonderful wife. I know she's committed her life to Christ. I don't want to go to heaven without my kids. I don't want to go to heaven without my granddaughter. One day she's going to hear from her grandpa about Jesus. I don't want to go to heaven without my neighbors. I don't want to go to heaven without uh, my fellow people. Without you. You don't want to go to heaven without your people either. So we got to keep reminding people that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven except through Him. We don't get there on our own merit, we get there on His, not our own ticket. On his and so Paul is broken-hearted and that's the value of the broken heart because as your heart is soft for people and you care about people there's a good chance there's a great thing that happens your heart not hardened. because when it quits caring then we're in trouble are we not there's a value in a broken heart in that we're soft like Jesus is soft toward us. He loves us and he wants us to know. And so he, Paul continues and says in verse 4 uh, that the, his people have this great privilege. They, they're the people of Israel. They're chosen by God. They're adopted as his children. And his, his people deny all these privileges. They deny the family acquaintance. They deny the family uh, hood, the family ship, whatever word I'm looking for. there They deny the family, the God, the Father. They deny the covenants that He made with them. Covenants to give them land and to bless them. And covenants to be their God and them to be their people. And, and covenants to, to, for their enemies to be His enemies and their adversaries to be His adversaries. Whose side do you want to be on? And yet they reject all of that. And Paul doesn't understand it. It's breaking his heart. And they were given the law, and that's a big deal because most of the Jewish people thought they were going to be okay if they just kept the Mosaic law, but they failed at that. They thought if we had the right DNA, and they did with Abraham, that they were okay. And if they kept the law, they did everything right, they would be okay. And most people in our world think the same thing. They think they're going to get to heaven because somehow they're better Their good deeds are better than their bad deeds, that they're going to outweigh them in the scales of justice. Let me tell you here right now, you're never, ever going to be good enough to get to heaven. No matter what you do or how good you are. How good is good enough? Where's the standard? It's Jesus. And you and I aren't meeting that standard. We're not going to make it. So we got to trust him and what he's done for us. And so Paul's heart breaks for his, his own people. And I'm asking you, who, who does your heart break for? Because there's this whole deal. The chosen people, Israel, You have got these patriarchs. And he kind of goes through the history of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham was the one God initially made the covenant with. And Isaac was his son, the, the son of, of promise. And, and then Jacob, you get to Jacob, and his name was eventually changed to Israel, and that's where the whole people of Israel get their name. And Jacob is a, he, he's a swindler. He's just a sorry dude. He's a no good, nobody. And yet God uses him and chooses him. And it's not based upon what he does. It's based upon God's sovereign choice. Way back in Genesis twenty-five, twenty-three, look it up a little bit later. It talks about, and he's talking here to, to Rebekah. And he says, in your womb, there's two sons, and they're going to be two nations. And he says, and we're going to get to this in, in just a moment, the, the older is going to serve the younger And he says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Whoa. Does God hate? Hold that question, okay, for just a moment. Hold that question. Does God love some people and hate other people? Does God play somehow a divine game of duck, duck, goose, duck, duck, damn? You're in. You're in. You go to hell? I don't think so. I don't think that's what the election is all about. We're going to get to that in just a second, though. And before we get there, though, let's look at the next section. Verse 6. Well, then God has failed to fulfill, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. So here's the promise. God's promise to bless uh, Abraham through his lineage, through his descendants, through Isaac. Abraham had eight sons. Did you realize that? Abraham had not only Isaac, but before he had Isaac, the older one's name was, you know, Ishmael, born of the slave or born of the servant um, Hagar. Ishmael's the oldest. Then Isaac. Then he has six other sons, not from Sarah, but from Keturah, his second wife after Sarah dies. And so, why does God choose Isaac among the eight sons of Abraham? Anybody know? Anybody? Please tell me. Nobody knows. Nobody but God. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. That's what Isaiah would say later. God chooses Isaac because God is God and you and I aren't. He does what he wants to do. Do you realize that? And so God's sovereignty is about God being in control and the universe doesn't revolve around us but around him. All of Christianity isn't about us but about him and so the promise that he makes to Israel is to bless them but to bless the world through them as well and later on that promise is fulfilled in fact by the time Paul is writing That promise is fulfilled. And Paul would talk about that promise being fulfilled in another letter he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians one twenty, And he says this, in fact, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. What role does... Israel have in the world, in the plan of God? Israel gave us Jesus. And all the people of the world have been blessed through Jesus. Jesus was a Jew, an Israelite. He's in the lineage of Abraham. He's in the lineage of David. We know that if we've been in church any time at all. But what difference does it make? Because all the promises that God has given in the Scripture are yes in Jesus. And if God doesn't fulfill His promise to the people of Israel, His chosen people, then what hope do we have? But we do have hope because He's given us all these promises, the greatest of which I think is that He will never leave us or forsake us. He hasn't forgotten us. He will be with us. Another promise found In John 1, 12, for those of you who don't know Christ yet, is this, for all who believed in Him, for those who received Him or accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. And that's what this passage is really dealing with. Who are the children of God? Is it Abraham's descendants? Is it those who do right all the time? Or is it those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and believe that He's covered them and their sin on the cross? All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Galatians 3:16 says this as well. I want you to hear it. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child, thinking maybe that's Isaac. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants, but rather it says to his child. And Paul doesn't say it's Isaac. And he says, and that, of course, means Christ, Jesus. That's who he's fulfilled all his promises in. You and I know it. But there's a people, a lost people, maybe some of your people who need to know it we want people to go with us don't we we want to populate heaven and expand his kingdom we want to be used by God in this salvation process in part of his his plan his grand plan he doesn't have to use us he chooses to use us and most of us have come to know Christ because someone cared enough to share with us here's the second question I think maybe we've covered most of it. No, that's the second question. Here's the second point of action. No, you you just trust. Trust his promises. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Here's the third promise, or the third question I have. And then we're coming back to verse 13. So let's continue. Back in Romans 9, beginning where we left off, if I can find that. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scripture says, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants were counted. And though Abraham had other children too, this means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will turn, return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. So that's Isaac there. This aunt, son was an, our ancestor Isaac. And when he married Rebecca, she gave birth to twins, but before they were born, get this, before they were born, when they had done, had done anything, before they had done anything, good or bad, she received a message from God. And this message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes or, or according to the purpose of his election. He calls people but not according to their good or bad works, she was told. Your son will serve your younger son. Your older son will serve your younger son. And in the words of the scripture, this comes from Malachi 1, 2, and 3, which had already been fulfilled. I loved Jacob, but Esau I hated, but I rejected Esau. Does God love some people and hate other people? That's the question. How do we resolve this? If we take this to be a literal statement, can we say God hates? Well, we can certainly say God hates sin. Put his son on the cross. But can we say God hates people? That God chooses the Israelites and hates the Edomites, which were the, the descendants of Esau? No. No. Because that's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. See, we get hung up on that word hate. And we're all emotional about that. And for us, that deals more with animosity than it does with what the Scripture deals with. Priority. Jesus would explain it this way. Luke 14, I think verse 56 or something like that. We're down to those verses somewhere along there. Can we put that one up there? Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your mother and father and your wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is Jesus saying you need to hate your parents and you need to hate your spouse and you need to hate your children and you need to hate your siblings? No. No. I love how the New Living Translation translates that. It's by comparison. Your love for God and His priority in your life should be such that that relationship with all those other people, in comparison, seems like hate. It's not a matter of animosity. It's a matter of priority. What's amazing is not that it says he hated Esau. For me, what's amazing is the fact that it says he loved Jacob. That's a sheer act of grace. You know Jacob's story. You know how he cheated Esau out of his birthright. You know Jacob's story. You know how he he cheated Laban, his future father-in-law. If you know Jacob's story, you know that is his Modus operandi. He always swindling or cheating or deceiving someone. And it's amazing to me that God chooses and loves him. And it's amazing to me that God chooses and loves me. And you. I don't know all of what you've done. But I know we never have to ask ourselves Has God chosen me? Does God love me? A lot of folks would think I'm not worthy to be loved and the truth is you're not. But it's not your worthiness that causes God to love you. It's His goodness. It's His grace. It's His character. God is love and He does love you and the cross is the demonstration of His love for you. Romans 5 eight, God demonstrated His love for us in this while we were yet Sinners. Christ died for us. So if you're here today and you've never known the love of God, never responded to His love for you on the cross, I'd invite you to respond. Because there's a lot of other verses I want to go through right now and this is how we're going to end. And just look at these together and remind you that God loves everyone, whoever will may come. Yes, He has chosen people, but He has chosen people for Himself to love and He wants to populate His family and His kingdom. And so let's look at some of those. John 3, 16, we know this. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world. Through him see I don't know if I'm part of the elect or not but I know I'm part of the world that God loves and sent Jesus because he loves us and he sent Jesus not to condemn us but to save us so let's look at some more the next one we look at is Isaiah 53 6 all of us all you might just circle that in your mind, in your, in your Bible. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray or have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us. Say that word with me. All. Oh. Can you include yourself in all? Of course you can. Can you include everybody else in your sphere in that all as well? Let's just keep rolling. Romans 8:32 just jot these down look at them later since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all won't he also give us everything else 1 Timothy 2:3 and 4 this is good and pleases God our savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth he wants everyone To be saved he's not willing that any should perish but that all come to repentance does that mean everybody's going to be saved no because you got to receive the gift he's given us the gift of Jesus Christ the Savior of the world you got to make that personal the gift does no good if you never unwrap it you never receive it why am I telling all of you who all have already done this, this. Because when you know something and it so overwhelms you, then you can't help but share that with someone else. And that's what I want to remind you of, myself of, how much God loves us. First John 4, 14 says this, Furthermore, we've seen with our own eyes, John says, and testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, Dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you'll not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. He took our place, and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. You see, those Jewish people, they were the original entitled people. They thought they were in the kingdom. They thought they were children of God because of their DNA and because of their keeping of the law. And they rejected everyone else. But that's not what the kingdom of God is like. It's a reminder that we're in, yes, but not, it's not just for us. It's for them. everybody in this world. What a difference. What a difference it will make if you have a burden for people. What a difference in Denver City and Texas and this great USA we live in. If we as the people of God share in whatever personality and opportunities and environment we have, what Jesus has done. How are you going to do that? Who's your one? Who's your what, guys? Because here's the final thing I want to share with you from Revelation 22:17. 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the the water of life, come. You respond. You come. You come and drink of the living water, Jesus Christ. You come and eat of the bread of life, the one who satisfies your soul. I pray for my oikos who doesn't know Jesus. I pray that they not be satisfied until they find their satisfaction in Jesus. That materialism and things of this world and even family relationships not satisfy their souls until they find their satisfaction in the bread of life. You be praying those kind of things. And you come. Because the people in your life love you. Maybe you're here today because they've invited you. You come. If you've never done that, you come. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation, come to the altar, and I invite you to come. And for those of us who've already come, you think about your burden. You think about what God has called you to, who God has called you to, a people group or uh, an age group or uh, a neighborhood or your family or who is it. You would be praying for them as we sing, come to the altar. Would you stand together and let's pray together and worship team, you come as we sing together. Father, we ask you, Lord, we ask you in the power of Jesus' name to save people's souls, to give us a burden for people who are far from God, to remind us that's our business as a church, to help people who are going to hell find their way, the only way, Jesus. You're the way to heaven Father all paths don't end up the same place there's only one path that ends up to you and Lord we want people to know we want people to understand what's been done for them the gift that's been given and we want people to accept and receive that as their own gift. Help them know, Lord, how much you love them. And that they can come. Be a part of your family and your kingdom. In your holy name we pray.